You are listening to episode 61 of In Film We Trust. I am Liam. I am Wayne. A weekly podcast where we discuss, dissect, and deep dive all things film, from the obscure to the mainstream. And now, on with the show. For our latest episode, we're back on UK shores and back into the world of folk horror. But given this is Mark Jenkin, the director of the fantastically off-kilter gentrification drama Bait, we're throwing convention off the cliff and entering a world of 16mm experimentation and what may or may not be a ghost story. In a film that owes as much to the terrifying public information films of the 70s as it does to the Wickerman, does this experiment hold any weight? Is there a point? And if so, then what the hell does it all mean? Stay with us as we attempt to uncover what lurks beneath the lichen. Two weeks ago we covered Submarine, the Richard Ayoade film, and it was close to our shores, it was filmed in Wales, set in Wales. And I think it's safe to say that we missed home a little bit too much because after we went to Sleeping Dogs in New Zealand, we decided to come back to the UK already and we're actually setting up shop here in Cornwall for Mark Mark Jenkins' latest film. And you know what's funny? We keep going to these places closer to home, but neither neither of us have ever been to Wales or Cornwall. No, that is weird. The closest I've ever come is I went to Devon as a kid. All I really remember is the chalets were quite nice. The car journey was torturous because it was so long because we live in the south of Scotland. So it's hours and hours in the car. It's a very nice place. I'd actually quite like to visit it again. And I'd like to visit Cornwall too, actually. So for our international listeners there, Cornwall is the southernmost tip of mainland England. When people hear about the famous uh, John O'Groats to Land's End, Land's End is in Cornwall. It's the very southwest tip of the United Kingdom. And John O'Groats is the top of Scotland, mainland mm-hmm. Scotland. Now, Mark Jenkin, now this is an interesting filmmaker, Wayne, because I've only seen two of his films, and I think a lot of people will be in that position also. Of course, he had Bait from 2019, and this, Ennis Main. I know it looks like <laughs> Ennis Men, but it is pronounced Ennis Main from last year, 2022. Now, before Bait from 2019, Jenkins made uh, roughly five films. He, had this, he is quite a depth of a filmography but importantly most of those films were relatively short in length they were typically 44 45 minutes in as is the case with bronco's house well it's ve- uh, most of his things are actually shorts like from 2003 to 2020 he made like upwards of 10 15 shorts it seems like he works better kind of in that time frame i know m night Shyamalan has said like when he writes films he kind of writes them with 90 minutes in mind so the kind of ideal feature length you have some directors who write films which are two and a half, three kind of hours long. Maybe they just think in that way. But it seems with Mark Jenkins, he likes the kind of smaller, more insular, in a way kind of more restricted films. He's actually said himself, I watched a documentary, he said, I love limitations. Yes. Which is a strange thing to say, but it does kind of make sense. If you're not trying to make your film too big, too epic, too grandiose, you can focus on the kind of fine details, the fine tuning of the film. And when you watch his films, I've seen two as well. I've seen Bait and I've seen Ennis Main. That sentiment totally makes sense when you actually watch those films of his. And there is a connective connective tissue between Bait and Ennis Main. There's a lot of similarities. And for whatever reason, all his films, is what I'm led to believe, are actually set in Cornwall themselves. So much so that he has been officiated a bard of Cornwall <laughs> for preserving and promoting Cornish history. 
Maybe it's just a case of he feels not enough films are made there because there's countries all over the world where you have a lot of films made, a lot of films set. But if I, if someone was to say to me, okay, go, Cornish cinema, like... I don't know. I what do I think I of when I think of Cornish cinema? I've never been to Cornwall before. Honestly, this is probably going to sound sad, but when you ask me, what would you associate with Cornwall? Is this going to be a Cornish pasty gag? Ice creams <laughs> and Cornish pasties. That's about all I can really associate with it. So if you ask me Cornish cinema, I would not know what to say. You can't leave the listener there. They're they're they're, they're <laughs> wanting to know what is a Cornish pasty, Wayne. A well, Cornish pasty. It is a kind of food. It's a pastry. Of course, with, I believe it's uh, meat, potatoes, M- minced beef, mm. swede, potato, something else, something else. I'd imagine. Yeah. If, if this is making you listeners feel hungry, then don't worry. It's doing exactly the same to me. Well, we're recording this about <laughs> lunchtime, so yes. I know that's really unfair. It's going to be lunchtime soon. I'm, all I'm going to want is a Cornish pasty. But so for, if this is a if this is a speedy episode, you'll know why. Exactly. If we dash off at any point, but for Mark Jenkins, I think growing up in Cornwall, he obviously really identifies with the culture and then the people there. Uh, Cornwall, I believe, has its own language, or at least its own dialect, which is where Ennis Main comes from. It's Cornish for Stone Island. Cornwall has a population of about 566,000, but as you said, they have their own language, but of that 566,000, only 471 are said to speak Cornish. So it is, you know, like Celtic or Gaelic, it's kind of a, a language that's kind of fell behind, it's fell, it's, you know, resigned to the past. English is the common language, of course, in the United Kingdom. Well, I have English students from all over the world, and a lot of them say to me, can you speak Scottish Gaelic? And I say no, and they're like, why not? Like, it was never part of our curriculum. I can't even remember being offered it. It's one of those languages which is, it's very niche. It's very restricted to, if you go to very rural parts of Scotland, like maybe the islands and the Outer Hebrides, etc. But for us, who live on kind of the mainland, it's just not very well, it's just not very widely spoken. And I think it must be the same case for Cornish. Now, in Cornwall, it has become a sadly impoverished county. Mm-hmm. Now, most of their traditional uh, methods of income have kind of dried up, so to speak. Now, pertinent to Bay and to Ennis Main is the tin and copper mines and fishing. Now, they play a strong part in Bay, they play a strong part in Ennis Main. They have sadly dried up, and what the county has become is kind of a, a middle class enclave of people with holiday homes mm-hmm. Buy, buying up properties and you know the local cornwallians if i'm not sure if that's the right term (laughs) but the local folks of cornwall you know their traditional ways of making money has dried up it's this idea of gentrification of these wealthy people coming from the cities and like you say holiday homes so they don't have to stay in hotels they have their own homes which they can kit up however they want that was the whole plot surrounding the film bait it was very much a conflict between i don't want to say the kind of old-fashioned but the kind of more in the past locals who, you know, they have their fishing and they have their pubs. And then you have these people who come in, these more upper class people. And it's that class divide as well. You have the working class versus the very upper class. And, you know, we live here. You just come here. I think there's a line, you know, you just come here for like two months a year. You don't live here. You're not part of this community. That's the whole conflict around the film Bait. Well, Bait is very interesting. It's essentially about a family of fishermen. Now, one can no longer afford to have a boat. Of course, his means of income have dried up. And the other brother, who has still got a boat, now, he is resigned to the fact that he's not going to be doing much fishing now. So what he does, he takes stag parties out, he takes tourists out on the on the sea, and the other brother can't reconcile with this. He's like, look, 
this is a slight on our family name. We are a family, a proud family of fishermen. And the gist of that film is, and the crux of it is, one of these middle class incomers who have bought up a property, the property actually belonged and was the family home of these fishermen. And, you know, they've decked it out in all this quote unquote plastic fisherman <laughs> stylings, furnishings that has, you know, is drawing allusions to the fisher fisherman life. But it's also at the same time getting rid of that. It's the gentrification. It's the, the ridding of the tradition. A very interesting looking movie. Mark Jenkins has this thing about his films looking kind of deliberately grainy and deliberately yep. cracked. I'm sure at one point he said he had the grain up so high in one of his films, the grain was practically a character of its own. And I love that about it. I love the aesthetic. But as you said, in that film, Bay, it's extremely polemic. Because at the end, the, the brothers do reconcile and start fishing again. So Jenkins has a point. I think he's on the side of, you know, and I think Ennis Main plays a large part of this point as well, is tradition is there to serve a function, not just something that is there to hang on the wall. I know for a lot of people, traditions are just the kind of things you've just done for hundreds and hundreds of years, and you don't really know why. It's why do we do this? Because we've always done it. You spoke before about how, for example, those mines, which are features in Cornwall, that would have been a thing for those people as well, the people who grew up working in the mines. They wouldn't have known any other work. They wouldn't have known how to go into any kind of occupation because that was their livelihood. That was It was yeah. basically in their blood. So with bait, I think it told a very universal story, had a very universal yeah. story at its heart. And I think that's what helped it to resonate with so many people. We could see ourselves in Martin, how our family have kind of gone off, they've digressed from the path, I guess you could say. Martin's trying to stick to it, and he's obviously struggling, and we can yep, empathise yep. with that struggle. Absolutely. And in Cornwall, I believe they were so in tuned with and tied in with tin mining, for example. I believe the Cornish were the first ones to ever have a tin mine in South Africa also. It was the mm. Cornish. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that would make absolute sense. But at some point, you know, it became one of these things where China, they took over tin mining, not because the obvious, because the prices, but because their tin in China is closer to the surface. So it was easier to get. The, sh the mines were shallower and it was more efficient to gather the tin. Oh, so it was not about forcing anybody out. It was just, just a simple matter of economics, basically. Now, how do you see Ennis Main? Because... Jenkins said he was billing this film. He says, this is this is a lost folk horror film from the 70s. And his producer said, look, it's probably best you don't say lost. He's like, okay, well, then it's just a, then it's just a Cornish folk horror film. And, it, and then he was like, you know what? It's actually not that hard. Like, and then he had to settle. He was like, look, it's just a Cornish film. <laughs> yeah, it's for me, it's the way it approaches the horror. Because what do we think of when we think of traditional horror? We think of, you know, we think of serial killers. We think of the paranormal. We think of, you know, people just jumping out of corners but with Ennis Main it's it's the atmosphere that this film is all about you can do a kind of comparison between Ennis Main and Bait I think in a way they are a lot different Bait feels like it has a much more straightforward through narrative obviously yep. the visuals do a lot of the telling of the story a lot yep. of the expressions a lot of the music for example but Bait had a much more straightforward story yep. Ennis Main is clearly a more interpretive film this is Mark Jenkins saying okay I had a big hit with Bait he actually won BAFTA for Outstanding Debut in 2020 yep, for Bait but with Ennis Main, I think this is him saying to himself, right, I'm really going to push myself. He obviously has, has this talent for 
the visual the experimental story, the experimental the visual storytelling using sound he likes to use the old bolex cameras he said yep. himself my work is rough around the edges so this <laughs> is not like budget limitations this is how he wants to make his films he wants to make them rough and gritty he doesn't want like that kind of clean imax perfection no, and I, do, I and I like it. I love his aesthetic. But he summed up his intention of Ennis May, and he says, "I've never liked horror films that start at the beginning, mess people up with slasher moments or jump cuts, and then take them back to the beginning and safety. I like films that take you into the woods. You don't know what the fuck is going on, then they <laughs> leave you there. See, there is no resolution to this film. There is no solution. We don't really know what it's about. It is completely abstract. We we have our own interpretations, and I." Love love that he explained the character in this film the volunteer because she has no name it's essentially just one character in the film mm. he said i purposely left her with no exposition no backstory so the viewer the viewer can put their own interpretations onto that character and i think in many ways the film as a whole is doing that there's not really many answers giving there's only what the viewer is interpreting what well, Mary Woodvine said exactly the same thing. She's who one who plays the volunteer, and she says, and, and and we should also say it's his partner in real life. It is, yeah. When she made this film, she says with Mark, sometimes he'll have an answer for something, sometimes he won't, and she'll say, well, should I maybe do bigger expression? Should I maybe doing this? Why is my character doing this? Why are you doing this? Sometimes she says he'll have an answer, he just won't tell me. So she says when she comes to make a film like this, fifty percent of the film is just like her interpretation. Fifty percent is what's been written down. So there's obviously a lot of his characters, a lot of the actors in the actual film themselves. And you can see a lot of throughway with this film and a lot of films from the 70s and some non-obvious ones, what you wouldn't think, and the 80s, so to speak. Okay, there's a film called Haunters of the Deep and it's actually so similar. It's so kind of in-tuned with the thematics that it's on the BFI special edition Blu-ray of Ennis Made. And it's a film of a mining family and, well, two families. It's, It's essentially a kid's film. One family is a Cornish mining family and the other kid is a girl from America. Her father is coming over to buy up or run the tin mine. Mm. And it's about, it's a, it's a ghost story. It's about being trapped. The miners showing you the way, the dead miners from a previous accident who died down there. And it, it's actually quite good. It is a decent, good film. It's only about an hour long. So if anybody's interested, Haunters of the Deep from 1984, but also in, in the 70s, apart from the obvious, The Wicker Man, Don't Look Now, we had and I think these were big in Britain. I'm not sure. They were probably big in America and other places. Public information films. Mm-hmm. Now, these were a big influence on Jenkins growing up. And one of those films was very popular. It was called Lonely Water from 1973. Now, this is a story. It's a public information film there to tell children to stay away from X, Y, Z. Okay. Well, this one's about water, waterways. Stay away from the water. It features a foggy river with the Grim Reaper standing there. And here's its opening opening narration way. And this is how well made they were. Now listen to this. He says, I am the spirit of dark and lonely water, ready to trap the unwary, the show-off, the fool. And this is the kind of place you'd expect to find me. That's eerie. That's This is for kids, Wayne. Is this not what in America they'd call like the after school special, which was things like, you know, stay away from drugs and cigarettes and, you know, look both ways when you cross the road. I have to say, 
us in the UK, we have some of the most badass of these service announcements. I've especially seen, the 70s. Yeah. Exactly, especially in the 70s. They didn't mess around then. There was one, it was it was trying to encourage children to stay away from power lines, stay away from power yeah. stations. Yeah. It was just a picture. It was a lightning bolt, like an anthropomorphic lightning bolt, which was holding a knife out towards a child. Now that, <laughs> that is a good way to get your message across very succinctly. Now, if you're wondering, did anybody of note come from these public information films? Well, Wayne, 1977, there was one, Apaches, which showed, showed kids playing cowboys and Indians on farmland. Okay, this was a stay away from farms, the machinery might kill you. And well, in that film, the machinery, like a slasher film, kills off the kids one by one for the entire duration. Now... Why did I say, does anybody of note come from them? Well, that was directed by John McKenzie. Now, that might not strike you off the bat straight away, but he directed the British classic, The Long Good Friday. Ah, right. Well, you I mean, these people have to get the start somewhere. And when I was researching Ennis May and I was looking at the influences, most of them for the 70s, in fact, I think about five or six on the list were from 73. You mentioned the two obvious ones, Wicker Man and Don't Look Now. Both great films, films I like very, very much, which have obvious influences here, not yep. just the cinematography, the kind of colour scheme, the fact we're taking place on these kind of remote locations. I mean, Wicker Man more than Don't Look Now. Actually, when I was researching this film, I mean, this film, it was set in 1973, yep. and that's exactly the same year that The Wicker Man came out. I thought, that cannot be a coincidence. I did wonder, because <laughs> the film is set around April, May 73. Yep. I was thinking, is that when Wicker Man came out? But no, it came out in December. So there's similarities, but not right on the nose. Okay, I don't know how facetious Mark Jenkins is, okay? Right, somebody asked him, somebody posed him the question, okay, why specifically? Okay, this, this is the 70s, we understand you want to put it in the 70s. Why specifically 1973? And he said, within this film, there is scenes of the volunteer, as she is called, because she is there to track the, this rare flower on Stone Island, on Ennis, Maine. And that's her job there. She goes each morning, she checks it, she writes in her journal is if anything's changed, okay? Now, when we see her write in that journal, which is night... She writes down 1973, and he said that is why he chose the year 1973, <laughs> because he liked the way it looked on the page. <laughs> you say that sounds facetious, but you know when I read that and I imagined writing 73 down in my head, it does have an interesting quality about it, I have to say. There's actually a more modern influence, and this is quite surprising because this is a film we've covered, Barbarian Sound Studio. Yep, yep. Because Mark Jenkins has talked about his love of Foley work because this Bolex camera uses, you wind it up, it records for about... 20 seconds so that dictates things like shot duration for example and in that case sound isn't recorded on the camera so the sound yep. has to all be done in like post-production and he's a big lover of Foley work and Barbarian a film we covered and loved very much showed a lot of that that was kind of the backbone of the film doing Foley work for these Italian films. Peter Strickland of Barbarian Sound Studio, a man I have never met so much who hates vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> he, he does that. There's a whole scene where Gilderoy is just stabbing the hell out of these vegetables. I think that's what it was. It was his. St it was his stand against vegetarianism. <laughs> I, I love that film, Barbarian Sound Studio. I have to say, it was great. And you do imagine Mark Jenkins being a kind of pragmatic individual, yeah. very low grade, very low budget. You can imagine him doing these kind of things because so much of the music in this film is just the kind of thing you would hear outside of a studio. It's all animal noises. It's the noises of feet on grass or feet on concrete. It's the birds chirping, etc. So it's all very naturalistic in terms of audio. Well, funnily enough, you say about the score there. Now, 
if anybody knows Warren Ellis, does anybody know Warren Ellis? He, he plays in the band Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Now, he was such a fan of the score of Mark Jenkins' bait, he phoned him up on the phone and told him he could not stop listening to that. Mm. There's, a, there's a great recommendation if you're looking for somebody to like your score and work. Because as we said, Mark Jenkins, he's the editor, the cinematographer, the director, the scorer. He does all the sound effects. And like you said, because of this unsynced Bolex camera, he does all the Foley work in his own studio. Now, there is a caveat to that. Because there was a journalist who went into his house and there was just a door lying on the floor. And he said, why have you got a door lying on the floor? And he says, it's because I'm capturing the footsteps for the Foley work. <laughs> now, Jenkin himself admits, he look, he's like, look, when I do my own Foley work, that is not necessarily for the finished product. I do send that to actual Foley artists who can actually perfect that, but it gives them the template of what he is trying to achieve. So what you're saying is Mark Jenkins is like, the Cornish Robert Rodriguez. <laughs> I think so. He's I doing, think he's the DIY man. He's doing everything himself. But I like that. I like that DIY approach because even if you send these sounds off to the Foley artists and whatnot, you're still getting that kind of raw sound because that's what a lot of this film is. It's very raw sound. This music is, would say it's simple and it's ominous and it incorporates natural elements to kind of emphasize this idea of isolation and lack of human presence because there's very few people in this film no no mary woodvine playing the volunteer she's in most of the film we only have yep. a few other people here that's very the much idea a film with, of her that's the idea with the score it felt like some like you know don't torture a duckling those kind of old <laughs> italian jello films where a lot of them take place out in the middle of nature and part of the fear is the fact you don't know whether you're alone or not right right and you said about the score there again, and I will would like to put in there, most of this, as you said, incorporates natural noise. It's very abstract, but he also uses, a, I think it's a mini Moog synthesizer. Mm -hmm. That's how he gets that specific old analog sound to the soundtrack. But visually, Wayne, you know in the 70s horror films, and they love the zoom lens. Yes. Now, this is why he incorporated it, and this is why he... Why his love of the zoom lens and this period, right? During lockdown, because this is very much a pandemic film, mm -hmm. he had been listening to the cinematographer Roger Deakins. You know Roger Deakins? Everybody knows Roger Deakins. His podcast about cinematography. And Jenkins loved the way, right? All these guys, you know, they're trying to be modern. They're trying to be contemporary. They're expelling their love of digital technology. But the moment they started talking about the old days, so to speak, they got really nostalgic about filming on film stock. Mm -hmm. And this is Jenkins. He loves the old ways, the analog ways, the clash of all this experimentation with all this old, this old medium. And in many ways, I think this is what this film is about. Thematically, we are talking of the clash of the old, the, the old Celtic Cornwall with the incoming Christianity. Now, are these things said in the film? You could make an argument. There is a scene with the church, mm -hmm. and and. Jenkins said it's almost the church is there almost and, and its presence is almost an appropriation of the the old pagan ways so to speak and there's also at least one I think two scenes with miners as well you talk about these things coming back from the past are these ghosts are these hauntings they might well be and you talk about people being kind of nostalgic for the past they grew up watching these kind of films and I like how Jenkin very much recreated that look and that feel if you told me you said before about lost film if you told me this was a lost film that someone had just discovered in a vault somewhere like something like The Passion of Joan of Arc was, for example, I would actually believe you because he's done a great job recreating that aesthetic. I think 
when he says about not wanting limitations, he wasn't bound to say, this needs to look perfect, this needs to look yep. good. He's like, this is going to look grainy, it's going to look kind of crappy, it's going to look like it was filmed on someone's old camera, but that's exactly the thing I'm going for. That's what he wants. Mm-hmm. He, he wants that lost Cornish folk horror film that he wanted the title, but he couldn't get a title. Exactly, and with, and, and with the music being laid over it, I was watching this film with subtitles, Kind of pointless because there's not much yep. dialogue. But when this yep. music plays, you know, it'll it'll dictate what sounds are happening, whether there's clashings and bangings, and it would often just say soft ethereal music, which is yeah. pretty much the perfect way to sum up what a lot of the score is. It's like being out for a walk in nature because it takes place on this island, which I believe was actually filmed off the coast of Wales, like you say, during lockdown. Just just the wide shots. The rest was in Cornwall, pretty much beside where they actually live in Cornwall. But yes, in the wide shot to sh- to show that it's you know an island of its own that is actually off the coast of wales yeah doing the zooming like you say there's these big wide shots big zooms in lots of static camera you have lots of shots that are blurred lots of shots that are zoomed it almost feels like a very kind of off kilter film like you know sometimes when you wake up or you're walking around your eyes are blurring yeah it's like you're seeing it through the eyes of a kind of real flawed human being that everything isn't just all crystalline and perfect all the time I've always wondered with these kind of non-linear, these experimental films, you know, how do you approach the script? Hmm. And Jenkins said, and I, and this is quite enlightening because I always wondered, look, this is non-linear. It goes back and forth. It's using time slip memory. So do you incorporate that in the script? And he says he just writes his script in a linear manner. Then it's during the edit that he messes with it all. So, I mean, that kind of simplifies something to a degree, I think. I can kind of understand where he's coming from here. If I was approaching a film like this, I'd maybe have the themes in my head. I'd kind of have the ideas. Then maybe just go out and have a look on the island and use that as a reference point, as a way to conduct this. Right, okay, I can put this over here. I can put this over here. I can kind of incorporate this scene here. So I reckon he probably starts with these ideas in his head. It's surprising to me that he says he writes it in a linear fashion. Yeah. Because this movie's really anything but linear. This movie does have a very, I'd say, kind of loose connection to a chronological time frame. Right, there is a ge- an absolute genius bit of filmmaking. We're talking about sound, Wayne. There is a shot of a bird flying over the sea just off the coast. Now, when it splashes into the water, rather than... And here's, and here's where ingenuity comes into this kind of filmmaking. Rather than it being a literal splashing noise into the sea, when it dives into the water, we hear the sound of breaking glass. Now... This is genius. Accidental genius, though, Wayne, because <laughs> this was partly accidental as Jenkins struggled to get the right Foley effect of the sound of the splash. But he realized he could incorporate this because what it does is foreshadows a later scene where a drinking glass breaks. Mm-hmm. So we're tying the memory, the time slip, just that little accidental, that ingenuity, how it incorporates itself and you know makes it uh, a more whole piece. I love that kind of work. That's what I think would have made it harder to write as well, this idea of you couldn't do that. Like, Did he know ahead of time he wasn't going to have a good Foley splash? He was going to have to use this <laughs> no. glass? Very much happenstance. And he said that about his work. And this brings me to a kind of point about art house films. I think you'll agree this is an art house film. He was saying about how he would make some kind of creative choice. He would use a certain noise or he would bang two rocks together or he would yep. have a certain visual element and someone would come to him, a fan, and they would say, oh, you did this because of this reason. You did this because it evoked such and such. And yep. he would say, yep. well, no, I actually just did it like that because I didn't have another choice. And- well, it's, it's, also all, it's all those happy accidents what happen in filmmaking. And, and, you know, sometimes it pulls off well and people think, you know, 
what a genius you are. Just like I'm saying about the breaking glass. It's like, no, sometimes it's just a happy accident. Exactly. But that brings me to the point. Do you think that these RRS films can be kind of overanalyzed to a point which is well beyond what the filmmakers were originally thinking? Of course. And I think that is partly what they are doing. I think that you leave something open to interpretation, you leave something vague, then Mm. people draw their own conclusions. I think that is part of what they are going for. Now, when you or I or reviewer XYZ says it's about this, that or the other. Now, those things maybe weren't intentional, but leaving it open for us to interpret was intentional. It's like can you ever have an incorrect interpretation? For me, this is why films like this, almost the kind of a double-edged sword in a way, because you can look at these images and you can say, okay, he's clearly trying to say this. This happens before this, so it's kind of connected. But in a way, I think it can also make people feel kind of like outsiders because they're worried about they'll watch a film like this and if they don't understand it, they didn't know what this was, they'll kind of be accused of not getting it. You know, we talk about kind of angry fan bases, like maybe for, it's usually science fiction things where... It kind of, if you're not with us, you're against us. Like we talked when we yep. spoke about Star per- Wars or something. Yes, when we talked when we spoke about Perfect Blue, it was that kind of fan mentality. Do you think that's a kind of stigma that brings up a kind of stigma around films like this because they're told in a kind of abstract way? Because they're not straightforward. Not only do you have people that will dismiss them for that reason, but you will have fans who will dismiss people who don't like them because they're not on the same intellectual level. They say they're not getting it. It's full of this crazy imagery. What does it mean? You just yeah. don't understand. Do you think that's kind of a problem with films of this ilk? It can be. You're, you're trying to say there's a toxic fan base that can come along with certain works of art that may be niche. Mm. And because somebody gravitates it towards it so much, anybody who detracts from that opinion just don't understand it. They're not intelligent enough. Is that what you're trying to get at? Exactly. You can put up a picture on the wall of pretty much nothing. It can be the weirdest looking thing. I mean, The Simpsons did an episode in this where Homer smashed up a barbecue he was trying to make. It's just a wrecked mess. But some art critic comes along and this is representative of the anger of the middle-aged man and this is representing the ire of society like this. You can attach so many meanings, so much interpretation to someone that maybe doesn't really deserve any of it or is not warranting of it and you can attach so much meaning to it because you want to intellectualize because you want to sound smarter that kind of thing i do think that's definitely in the art world isn't it it's it's for example i i can't remember the artist's name but they'll like for example just put a, a white painting on the wall yeah I've and heard that. and and because it's you know if you attach a meaning to it you say look it's it's white because any anybody who watches it anybody who views it can project their own meanings onto it so therefore mm. it takes on greater significance and then you'll get these people who are you know become enamored with this and mm. you're like you know this is bullshit, man. It is a white picture on the wall. Fuck off. Exactly. That's exactly the kind of thing I think. You can say it's interpretive. You can say it's fantastic. It's profound and meaningful. I'll look at that and say, it's just a white picture on the wall. Why are you wasting my time with this? And I think there stop is... Being, stop being so gullible. Exactly. I think there is a lot of something like this in maybe the art house cinema world where you maybe ask the question, what does a film gain from being abstract in this manner rather than telling something in a like straightforward narrative? So... Did you? Are you trying? Are you hinting, Wade? Are you trying to sow the seeds? Did you find it a little too abstract? In some ways, I did find it more abstract. That's kind of why I preferred Bait. It still had the kind of visual flair, but at its heart, it had a more 
sort of throughway narrative, a more kind of coherent narrative. Maybe that's the thing. I know you think kind of opposite to that. Yeah, and I prefer Ennis Main. You prefer Ennis Main. I prefer Bait. You prefer Ennis Main. Yeah. Oh no, am I am I the dickhead who likes the white painting on the wall? <laughs> no, that's why that's why I wanted to ask that question because we often talk about how we're intellectualizing, we're overanalyzing, and I'm saying in a film like this, it almost invites that because you have yeah. a, a weird image. You have a character standing on a roof. You have a group of priests in an underground tunnel. You have a group of miners in an underground tunnel. You have a bird crashing into the water and there's a sounding of shattered glass. It's almost impossible to look at that and not come to all of these conclusions. Well, let's try and get to some of these meetings, right? Because it's a very, very simple plot. We literally have a volunteer there on this island, on her own, in this kind of almost derelict derelict cottage that runs on a generator okay so each morning each day she goes to these wildflowers she jots down in her journal if anything has changed she takes the temperature and ritualistically some reason wayne and i have got an interpretation for this ritualistically she'll drop a stone back into the disused mine shaft Mm -hmm. now what is this saying because within this film and i suppose that you could almost class as a horror element of this film is we see these spectrals these ghostly figures are they there are they not is it just a time slip we see old miners there they're in their old gear so it's obviously from many years even before the 70s we also see the ball maidens the ball maidens no no if anybody doesn't know what a ball maiden is in cornwall it would be the women who worked above ground who would fish through the rubble for ore and collect ore. So we see them, we see flashes of a church. Now the preacher in the church is played by John Woodvine, Mary Woodvine's father. Hmm. So we're seeing all these connective elements and one can say, okay, what is it? This this on some element could be nonsense. We're, ju- we're just playing with time. But in many ways, it's it's the time slip. It's, it's everything is coalescing at one time. She is taking that space on that part of the environment, but also these miners had a history there. There's also a plaque of, you know, dead sailors from a century or so ago. And it's kind of, in a way... It's that it's the history of that island. It's all coalescing at once. The memories, the, the, the ghosts. They're not really ghosts. It's the memories of the island. Because as this film is called Ennis Main, I don't really see. And I think that's probably why she's just re- referenced as the volunteer. It's not really her story. It's the story of the island and all that's inhabited it during its duration. I was thinking that these churchgoers and these miners that we're seeing, they were somehow like kind of like hauntings of the past. These are people who have maybe died on this island. They're people who have died in this area. And their ghosts are like, they're forever cursed to live on this island, almost like she is. We have no idea why she's on the island. She has this very simple task, which we'll get to soon. But she has this routine on the island. I think a lot of the fear came from, and this is where someone can just dismiss this film as being repetitive, because we see her have this same routine. She checks these flowers, she writes in a book, she drops this stone down this this empty well but it's the more frantic nature as things go on as things progress she gets more frantic she seems to be more and more worried yep. she'll do things in a quicker fashion she'll move between places in a quicker fashion right. i love that very subtle storytelling there that we're seeing this speeding up of her routine which indicates her kind of more frantic state of mind because she's seeing these weird things yep. she's seeing these choruses of people she's seeing these groups of minors which she doesn't know right. she's in this isolated environment with this this ethereal music playing so we're getting to understand what she's thinking what she's feeling what's kind of propelling her on this solo journey on this island well jenkin remarked on what he finds true horror and this 
plays into the, the, the time slip that we're discussing. He says, The thing I fear most is the breakdown of time. Films that mess around with time logic have always fascinated me. What if tomorrow isn't another day? What if tomorrow is the same day? That's true horror for me when time doesn't make sense because there's nothing to cling on to. The fact that there is 24 hours in a day is very comforting to me. If that disappears, then who are we? What are we? What comes next? Now, I think you're taking maybe, I don't know, because this is all left to interpretation, a too literal approach to the volunteer. Mm -hmm. I think she is maybe, possibly, just another manifestation of that island. What she's experiencing there, we see a teenage girl, for example, and this teenage girl, she's like, she haunts the, the environment almost like the miners do and the ball maidens do and the choir singers do, and she falls off the roof. She cuts herself on her abdomen. And what it, was, what it is revealed later is the volunteer, she also has the same cut. So, of course, it's memory coalescing. Mm-hmm. This happened to her as a teenage girl. and But it's all existing as one. That's what did make me think. When that young woman appeared, as soon as she appeared, and then the volunteer, because the volunteer speaks to this young woman. I don't think she speaks to the minders or the priests, so she has some kind of direct contact. I thought this is either a daughter that she's left behind in a previous life, or this is her as a younger woman. And like you say, she gets a cut on her abdomen. Very deliberately, the volunteer has the same cut as well. And that's where the lichen starts to grow. Everything is kind of messed up in the sound. Another visual thing I liked as well, another element of this, was the oven sign, which washes up on on the shore. (laughs) That's quite clever. Not literally an oven. But when I seen it, and I seen a bit missing, like that's part of a sign which has come missing. And it turns out it actually came off a boat called the Governek. The Governek, yeah, that's it. <laughs> Bit of an odd thing. And I thought, okay, so this boat pulls up on the island. This is going to have fallen off. But the sign on the boat is complete. Right. That's where it came from. So she has found like a piece of flotsam from a shipwreck that hasn't even happened yet. So again, we're talking the time loop. Where is this woman in time? That's one of the scary elements. In this film, the volunteer, she's dressed in a red mark raincoat blue jeans and boots okay originally this was going to be a yellow coat Hmm. and the seam the seaman was going to wear a red one and what was going to happen was she was going to see red in the sea red in the sea and she she thought it was going to be blood etc but it was going to be this red coat but that got changed to she finds a yellow coat on land now why did he change this because wayne because Hmm. and here's a funny anecdote the yellow coat the blue jeans was exactly what Charlotte Gainsbourg wore in Lars von Trier's Antichrist. And he thought, no, I can't do that. Everybody's going to think I'm ripping off Lars von Trier's Antichrist. But in a weird way, now everybody thinks the red coat is ripping off Don't Look Now. Honestly, when I seen it, when I seen her in the red coat, that was the first thing I thought. Is she meant to look like the creature thing sneaking about from Don't Look Now? I did see a thing with Mark Jenkins where he said he just liked the red. He liked how it popped we've spoken about we've referenced suspiria which has one yep. of the most vivid color palettes the reds in that are unbelievably vivid they just pop right out of the screen i thought that was one of the reasons that she had the red coat well he says red and green but there's not much green in this film apart from the landscape but red it pops it as you said and he says this is specific to film stock he says digital doesn't capture red in the same way as digital does so he just wanted the red to pop out as much as possible. So there, another benefit of using the kind of filming technique yep. that he was using because this red is so vivid. It really, like, marks her out on the landscape because, like you say, there's lots, there's you know green in the landscape, but there's not much red. So when you see her there, it's like yep. she's kind of highlighted against the backdrop. 
But here kind of plays into your, you know, your oven, the, the board <laughs> she finds now and the time warp and what it all means. And I don't know. This was just a, a random thought. OK, the, the flowers that she is uh, keeping an eye on, they are exactly the same colors of the clothes she wears. She mm. finds the yellow coat. There's yellow in the flower. There's a red. She wears the red coat. She's white. She has that cream top on. Mm. It's this bizarre intersection between man and nature and i think that's what it's going for because in this film the volunteer reads a book and there's only one book in this film she reads and it's called the blueprint for survival Hmm. now this was a book from 1972 i believe which exposed it was made up of loads of different essays but it exposed living in small de-industrialized communities for environmental reasons now You may think, okay, this was purposeful, this was thematic, and in many ways it is, but Jenkins was just looking for a book from 1972 or 3, and he liked the cover. He thought it was stark, and he went from there, because at first it was going to be Kurt Vonnegut's The Slaughterhouse Five, and because he he was going to choose that because it also features non-linear storytelling, but ended up choosing blueprint for survival and now he's realized look it does make and it enhances the film in in many ways it did feel a lot more purpose purposeful because you mentioned there about environmentalism i think that was another thing this movie was very much leaning into because we talk about it was filmed during the covid pandemic he wanted to keep a very very low carbon footprint in fact i think they actually offset the carbon they produced making this film. She's got a they book did. called A Blueprint for Survival, which is kind of like an indicator of maybe what we'll need at one point. She's monitoring these flowers who... Probably soon. Exactly. These flowers who start to get a lichen on them. This lichen grows, which is like a kind of virus, and it spreads. It's, it's almost like a, it's between a fungus and some kind of other organism. Exactly. And that cut on her body that the young woman had, that she had, that's where the lichen starts to grow, that part there. And she's recording these observations. She's saying lichens appeared on one of the flowers. Then as the film film progresses it's grown on the flowers it's grown on the flowers it's spread to all the flowers and finally the flowers have gone feels like a very blatant visual metaphor about how destroying the planet and how she's trying to monitor it she's also talking about she's monitoring the rise in the temperature Yep, she is. It's going up very slowly, very incrementally, but it's going up very clearly. Every single day she's recording this temperature is going up. Also, the final entry she writes is on the 1st of May which is yep. May Day, and I was looking this up. It's not just we think now like an SOS signal. May Day was a day of festivities which marked the beginning of summer. Going right back to Roman times, you had activities like picking flowers. <laughs> People would make floral garlands. They would dance around the Maypole. That is a very folk horror element. Yeah, well, and it also, it's pretty much the burgeoning of spring, isn't it? Mm. New growth, the regeneration. And here's thematically, okay, in this film, Could you say that this film, above all, is nature taking itself back from the destruction of humans? You don't have the miners mining there anymore. All these people who are involved in some kind of taking of the earth that is reclaiming itself. I think it is, and it fits into the time loop as well, because usually when you think of spring, as we just mentioned, you think of, you know, the ice has gone away, the frost has gone away, and now these flowers can blossom they can bloom but in this film's case it's gone backwards we start off with these beautiful flowers then they have this lichen fungus going on them and then they die so it's like time is rolling backwards now with all these specters or whatever you want to call them the volunteer never really reacts much now 
Woodvine, Mary Woodvine, who plays the volunteer, she would say to her partner, Jenkin, that she she thinks her character needs to react to these scenes more. <laughs> there needs to be more emotion. But Jenkin was adamant, adamant that the character should not look like a victim or someone who is being pursued all the time. And I think this plays into it. There is no pursuing. There is no haunting. These things are coalescing in a way that isn't... I don't think she really sees them, these things. Do you? No, not necessarily, because... You get this in a lot of films of this nature where you'll have characters who will be stood, stood still and they'll be staring off into the distance. We're meant to think, what are these people thinking? What are they contemplating? We're supposed to see ourselves kind of through their eyes. But I don't think she sees a lot of this. She sees the young woman, I think, because she talks to her. She actually has brief conversations. She talks to this, he's like a sailor, actually, played by the guy who played Martin in Bait. Ed Rowe, Ed Rowe, because yeah. Ed Rowe had a character, was it the Colonel King or something, something and he's because he's, he's a comedian and he has this stereotypically Cornish character, and he was in Bay, he was the lead in Bay, and he plays the seaman in this who brings the petrol for the generator to function. Yeah, I thought he was in this as like a lover from the volunteer's past, we talk about yep. the shipwreck, maybe that's what happened to him, maybe, maybe that's why she never seen him again, and now that they're both on this island, which has very mysterious properties, it's like they're being brought back together again. Now, somebody remarked that this person probably does exist. The seaman is there to bring the petrol for the generator. Of course, she needs petrol to facilitate that. Mm. Now, somebody remarked, and, and this is not something I necessarily picked up on, that who she actually sees, or we see as the audience, is her former husband. Mm -hmm. And this is her escape from her former life. She has essentially run away brought herself to nature. Now, who we see is not necessarily the seaman himself, but she is projecting the image of her husband uh, because we see them make love against the wall in some kind of flash of memory. Mm -hmm. We see them sit there stoically, not really saying much. It's a very weird relationship. So we're not really getting much. We also see them disco dance, Wayne. Yeah, that was interesting. <laughs> and and Jenkin made sure, because they were smiling when they were dancing, he said, do not smile. I want no expression <laughs> on your face. So we're getting this weird juxtaposition of all these images, Wayne. And Trying to make sense of them is one of the joys of rewatching this film. I really enjoyed this rewatch because I'm trying to interpret, trying to come to some understanding of what is going on. And I'm probably missing the point on many of it. But it's interesting, as you said, the blank canvas. How do you interpret the blank canvas? And I don't know. I think there's something maybe in that. Is she projecting the face of her former husband, so to speak, onto this semen? Maybe. Maybe. There's maybe something there. So would you recommend a rewatch for this film? Not necessarily, you know, out of any kind of entertainment value, but because of what you interpreted one time might be totally different the other time. You talk about how abandoning, running off to the sound, that was one of my thoughts. That's why I thought that teenage girl popped up. I thought that was like a physical manifestation of her guilt. So maybe yes. she ran away on this husband, but she ran away on this child and she doesn't really want to see her anymore. She's kind of scarred in the same way she's scarred. Is it actually her? Is it her child? Not really sure, but the movie really leaves that up to interpretation. Well, it's like the opening scene. Here's a, The opening shot of this entire film is a radio transistor, which is a direct, in Jenkins' way, homage. He, he claims a rip-off, but the, interv <laughs> the, the interviewer said it's more generous just to say homage. He said, okay, it's a homage rip-off. <laughs> and that's a, a, a homage rip-off, Wayne, to Bresson's L'Argent that mm. opens with a straight shot on a 
cash register and that is directly taken from that so you know we're getting all these things or references to pick up on yeah, so he's throwing in kind of references to films that he loved, films that influenced this one, films that kind of helped shape his his aesthetic, his filmmaking techniques. I think so. And I love how all of those machinations, Wayne, they bring themselves to a greater, larger piece of art. And as you said, does it hold up to the rewatch for entertainment? Wayne, I... No. I think you and I differ here. No, let's 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 be honest here. Let's let's get to the nitty gritty way. Mm-hmm. I I love this film from an entertainment point of view, a thematic point of view. This is just kind of the filmmaking I love. I've watched it I think two or two or three times, mm-hmm. and for me, it's always a brisk hour and a half. Now, for some people, I can imagine they're like, "Oh my god, this is this is this is slow going. This <laughs> this is hard. This is hard going. Nobody's talking. We're just watching a woman walk around a little bit of island. She records the same thing every day. She drops a stone ritualistically. There's not much going on, but but under the surface." When you're appreciating all the foley work, the the editing, the cutting, all those things, you know, us film nerds love, it absolutely does hold up to a rewatch because you're seeing the the technical aspects as well as the thematic aspects. And I think those blending of the two in this extremely experimental horror film, if you want to use horror in quotations even, mm-hmm. and it for me it holds up well. Now, I know you somewhat, I know you liked it, but you had a little bit of issue. You you thought it was, in some ways, to its detriment, its style. In a sense, yeah, because it's a very niche style. It's a very singular style. We've seen it in quite a few art house films before. I've seen films that'll have very similar images. You'll, it's usually things like volcanoes erupting. You'll have young, like newly born creatures writhing on the ground and you'll have the sun coming through trees and through leaves and branches so it's a very specific kind of style i did enjoy the film a lot less than bait i liked bait more i don't know i was thinking this when i was watching am i just more of a story guy am i more of a character guy do i not want some things to be told to me in this manner because like i say i picked up on things like her increasingly frantic routine as she goes around the island i picked up on the specters of the miners and of the congregation and then the little girls out the front of the house we talk about the foliage we talk about environmentalism in fact that house she's staying in the plants and flowers that are growing up the front of the house those yep. increase throughout the film yeah those do take over the film so i like things like that for me a lot of it is when you start to get some of the imagery some things start to feel like we're seeing this again watch this what's going on it's almost like a film that i enjoy more after it's done because when we get to do something like this when we get to talk through the interpretations i love doing that that's what i love so much about doing yep. this podcast as a piece of entertainment maybe like you say maybe just not my thing you even said this when we're like we're gonna do ennis main might not be your thing i can totally <laughs> understand why i wouldn't <laughs> you, you get it now why i said that to you. i wouldn't not not recommend it it's the kind of film that has a very much a critical and audience divide like a lot of films and tv shows have nowadays because i've read a lot of negative reviews i've read positive reviews people saying the kind of things you do and then the negatives say the kind of thing you could imagine it's too boring it's too slow there's not enough dialogue etc etc so these are all points of view that i can totally understand but as a viewing experience i would definitely lean more towards bait than towards ennis main 
Well, let's let's go to Mark Kermode himself, who gave this film, Wayne, five stars mm. out of five, calling it a richly authentic portrait of Cornwall, and saying of Woodvine's performance was quietly mesmerizing. And also Adam Scoville, writing for the BBC Culture, mm. said the film was a perfect anti-romantic <laughs> expression of Cornish eeriness. Now, we should we would be remiss Wayne we'd be remiss if we ever ended this episode without <laughs> without saying that there is a famous hymn in this film mm-hmm. sung by John Woodvine now the original version or the popular version it's a song called the Bristol Christ and this is sung by Brenda Wooten who is a famous Cornish singer folk singer and it's by a poem called Charles Cosley a national poet of Cornwall Now, this takes place in a church, and the volunteer also sings along to it. She's not really there. As we're saying, this is all time slip. Now, originally in this, because it's a pandemic film, this should have been Mark Jenkins' biggest set piece he was ever going to have. He was going to say there's going to be hundreds of extras, big choirs, all singing this song in in chorus. But it was really reduced to just John Woodvine, pretty much, and his daughter, (laughs) Mary Woodvine. And it works tremendously well. Now... You were saying a second ago about how the plants were growing. Mm-hmm. And that's what it, for me, this is what this film is about. It is the, in many ways, here, here's a weird thing. Would you call this film paganistic almost? The clash of the old and the new. Now, we've got the old is in the sense of the nature itself. And if we want to class Christianity as new, we've got those church scenes, which Jenkins says is almost an appropriation because in a way, this is a pagan county. Traditionally, the Christianity feels almost out of place. So would you say there is a clash of mankind and nature and the damage we are doing? Is this ultimately, Wayne, just an environmental story i think in a sense it is i wouldn't say it's just environmental story i think there are more facets to it than that but seeing this plant being studied seeing the temperature constantly rising seeing how the what's happening with the environment the lichen growing in these plants is happening to her as well kind of saying that we are at the mercy of nature we need nature nature does not need us you talk about the pagans as well. Obviously, pagans would have been pushed out by you know the burgeoning religion of you know whatever the religion was at the time. But things like neo-paganism, for example, we talk about May Day celebrations before celebrating yep. the Earth. Neo-pagans have actually kind of sought to bring back a lot of these May Day celebrations, going back more to nature. I think I believe it's pantheism where yep. you worship nature as kind of the god. And there's a scene in this film which kind of lent. I was kind of leaning into that, where the plants lean towards the volunteer. They actually tip towards her. So I was thinking, is this going with some kind of goddess of nature thing? Is it because we see ourselves as like lords of the earth, even though we totally don't deserve to? See, I think those elements were coming in as well. And I like how just a little scene like that, just a subtle tipping of the plants towards the protagonist, that can bring up this whole other field of interpretation. Who knows, Wayne? Who knows? But I have to add this fact, Wayne. I would be absolutely appalled if I never mentioned this fact. It's a bit of a non-sequitur, but it has to get in there. It has to get in there, okay? Right. In this film and in Bait, this is the weird thing, Wayne. It's, a, it's, it's absolutely mental, right? Mm. Okay. You know how this film contains a lot of her writing in her journal, taking yeah. notes for 1973, etc., like we said? Okay. The close-up of the hands of the volunteer are not actually her hands. Mm. They are the assistant directors. 
because he rationalises that Woodvine has a tight tendon on her finger on her left hand that is distinctive. So that's why he chose a handle mm. for the writing scenes. Now, in a weird turn of events, funnily enough, that hand double had an accident during production while playing football, which bent his finger, which needed operated on in the exact same way as Mary Woodvine's was originally. <laughs> All this just for some writing in a book. Was he not saying as well her writing was not like theatrical enough? It didn't look. It didn't. It seemed to lack that kind of penmanship that he was know. looking for. I don't know. I think. For. I think he's maybe just a control freak because the protagonist in Bait was also hand double. Yeah, it was as well. What the hell? It's it's weird that he does have these very specific eccentricities. Maybe we can say. But if you're doing a close up of a hand, you want the you know you want the writing to look kind of interesting and even. Even that journal has kind of its own story because she works through April, 1st of May, May Day. After that, she writes no change. Usually, she was writing no change next to like remarks for the flowers. But after the flowers are gone, no change has suddenly become the date. So it's like <laughs> we've been stuck in this kind of time loop where time is very liquid, yes, it's very yes. fluid. Now yes. it seems to we've come to a point where time has actually stopped entirely. I know, I know. And the detours we take, Wayne, I don't know how we went from your ve- your very pointed thematic look at the film to me going on about hand doubles. But yes, Wayne, as you said, and there is also an importance to this, because this film, we're haunted by this stone. It's called Ennis, Maine, after all, Stone Island. There is a large stone structure there, okay? And I think that's one of the oldest stone structures in the United Kingdom. But We are constantly haunted by this through the volunteer as it stands atop that hill. And as the film goes on, it appears in some regards to get closer. Mm. And the ending shot, which is the shot of the poster, or most posters, and the Blu-ray cover is of the volunteer standing where that stone is. And I think this is making a thematic point that we are all nature, we have to respect nature. And... I will end this podcast, Wayne, by saying and by summing up what this film is and what it's trying to say in Jenkins' words. He says, The film is ultimately about the fragility of the natural world, but also how robust it is. It perseveres in the face of human alteration and what we take from it. But at the same time, paradoxically, the natural world isn't as fragile as human existence. You've been listening to episode 61 of In Film We Trust. Once again, I'm Wayne. I'm Liam. Join us next week where we'll discuss, dissect, and deep dive all things film from the obscure to the mainstream. 